0: the Data Skeptic bonus feed, where we release extended content on data science, statistics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. 7. Learning Machines. The reader will have anticipated that I have no very convincing arguments of a positive nature to support my views. If I had, I should not have taken such pains to point out the fallacies in contrary views. Such evidence as I have I shall now give. Let us return for a moment to Lady Lovelace's objection, which stated that the machine can only do what we tell it to do. One could say that a man can inject an idea into the machine, and that it will respond to a certain extent and then drop into quiescence, like a piano string struck by a hammer. Another simile would be an atomic pile of less than critical size. An injected idea is to correspond to a neutron entering the pile from without. Each such neutron will cause a certain disturbance, which eventually dies away. If, however, the size of the pile is sufficiently increased, the disturbance caused by an incoming neutron will very likely go on and on, increasing until the whole pile is destroyed. Is there a corresponding phenomenon for minds, and is there one for machines? There does seem to be one for the human mind. The majority of them seem to be subcritical, that is, to correspond in this analogy to piles of subcritical size. An idea presented to such a mind will, on average, give rise to less than one idea in reply. A smallish proportion are supercritical. An idea presented to such a mind may give rise to a whole theory, consisting of secondary, tertiary, and more remote ideas. Animals' minds seem to be very definitely subcritical. Adhering to this analogy, we ask, can a machine be made to be supercritical? The skin-of-an-onion analogy is also helpful. In considering the functions of the mind, or the brain, we find certain operations which we can explain in purely mechanical terms. This we say does not correspond to the real mind. It is a sort of skin which we must strip off it, if we are to find the real mind, but then in what remains we find a further skin to be stripped off, and so on. Proceeding in this way, do we ever come to the real mind, or do we eventually come to the skin which has nothing in it? In the latter case, the whole mind is mechanical. It would not be a discrete state machine, however. We have discussed this. These last two paragraphs do not claim to be convincing arguments. They should rather be described as recitations tending to produce belief. The only really satisfactory support that can be given for the views expressed at the beginning of section 6 will be that provided by waiting for the end of the century and then doing the experiment described. But what can we say in the meantime? What steps should be taken now if the experiment is to be successful? As I have explained, the problem is mainly one of programming. Advances in engineering will have to be made too, but it seems unlikely that these will not be adequate for the requirements. Estimates of the storage capacity of the brain vary from 10 to the 10 to 10 to the 15 binary digits. I incline to the lower values and believe that only a very small fraction is used for the higher types of thinking. Most of it is probably used for the retention of visual impressions. I should be surprised if more than 10 to the 9 was required for satisfactory playing of the imitation game. At any rate, against a blind man, the capacity of the Encyclopedia Britannica, 11th edition, is 2 times 10 to the ninth. A storage capacity of 10 to the 7 would be a very practical possibility, even by present techniques. It is probably not necessary to increase the speed of operations of the machines at all. Parts of modern machines, which can be regarded as analogs of nerve cells, work about a thousand times faster than the latter. This should provide a margin of safety, which could cover losses of speed arising in many ways. Our problem, then, is to find out how to program these machines to play the game. At my present rate of working, I produce about a thousand digits of program a day, so that about 60 workers, working steadily through the 50 years, might accomplish the job if nothing went into the waste paper basket some more expeditious methods seem desirable. In the process of trying to imitate an adult human mind, we are bound to think a good deal about the process which has brought it to the state that it is in. We may notice three components: a. the initial state of the mind, say at birth, b. the education to which it has been subjected, c. other experiences, not to be described as education, to which it has been subjected. Instead of trying to produce a program to simulate the adult mind, Why not rather try to produce one which simulates the child's? If this were then subjected to an appropriate course of education, one would obtain the adult brain. Presumably, the child brain is something like a notebook, as one buys it from the stationers. Rather little mechanism and lots of blank sheets. Mechanism and writing are, from our point of view, almost synonymous. Our hope is that there is so little mechanism in the child brain that something like it can be easily programmed the amount of work and the education we can assume, as a first approximation, to be much the same as for the human child. We have thus divided our problem into two parts, the child program and the education process. These two remain very closely connected. We cannot expect to find a good child machine at the first attempt. One must experiment with teaching one such machine and see how well it learns. One can then try another and see if it is better or worse. There is an obvious connection between this process and evolution by these three equivalences. Structure of the child mind is equivalent to hereditary material. Changes of the child mind are equivalent to mutations. Natural selection is equal to the judgment of the experimenter. One may hope, however, that this process will be more expeditious than evolution. The survival of the fittest is a slow method for measuring advantages. The experimenter, by the exercise of intelligence, should be able to speed it up. Equally important is the fact that he is not restricted to random mutations. If he can trace a cause for some weakness, he can probably think of the kind of mutations which will improve it. It will not be possible to apply exactly the same teaching process to the machine as to a normal child. It will not, for instance, be provided with legs, so that it could not be asked to go out and fill the coal scuttle. Possibly it might not have eyes. But however well these deficiencies might be overlooked by clever engineers, one could not send the creature to school without the other children making excessive fun of it. It must be given some tuition. We need not be too concerned about the legs, eyes, etc. The example of Miss Helen Keller shows that education can take place provided that communication in both directions between teacher and pupil can take place by some means or other. We normally associate punishments and rewards with the teaching process, Some simple child machines can be constructed or programmed on this sort of principle. The machine has to be so constructed that events which shortly preceded the occurrence of a punishment signal are unlikely to be repeated, whereas a reward signal increased the probability of repetition of the events which led up to it. These definitions do not presuppose any feelings on the part of the machine. I have done some experiments with one such child machine and succeeded in teaching it a few things. But the teaching method was too unorthodox for the experiment to be considered really successful. The use of punishments and rewards can at best be part of the teaching process. Roughly speaking, if the teacher has no other means of communicating to the pupil, the amount of information which can reach him does not exceed the total number of rewards and punishments applied. By the time a child has learned to repeat Casa Bianca, he would probably feel very sore indeed if the text could only be discovered by a 20 questions technique every no taking the form of a blow. It is necessary, therefore, to have some other unemotional channels of communication. If these are available, it is possible to teach a machine, by punishments and rewards, to obey other orders given in some language, for example a symbolic language. These orders are to be transmitted through the unemotional channels. The use of this language will diminish greatly the number of punishments and rewards required. Options may vary as to the complexity which is suitable in the child machine. One might try to make it as simple as possible, consistently with the general principles. Alternatively, one might have a complete system of logical inference built in. In the latter case, the store would be largely occupied by definitions and propositions. The propositions would have various kinds of status, for example, well-established facts, conjectures, mathematically proved theorems, statements given by an authority, expressions having the logical form of prepositions but not belief values, Certain propositions may be described as imperatives. The machine should be so constructed that as soon as an imperative is classed as well-established, the appropriate action automatically takes place. To illustrate this, suppose the teacher says to the machine, do your homework now. This may cause, teacher, say, do your homework now to be included amongst the well-established facts. Another such fact might be, everything that teacher says is true. Combining these may eventually lead to the imperative, do your homework now, amongst the well-established facts, and this, by the construction of the machine, will mean that the homework actually gets started, but the effect is very satisfactory. The processes of inference used by the machine need not be such as would satisfy the most exacting logicians. There might, for instance, be no hierarchy of types, but this need not mean that type fallacy will occur, any more than we are bound to fall off unfenced cliffs, Suitable imperatives, expressed within the systems not forming part of the rules of the system, such as, do not use a class unless it is a subclass of one which has been mentioned by teacher, can have a similar effect to, do not go too near the edge. The imperatives that can be obeyed by a machine that has no limbs are bound to be of a rather intellectual character, and in the example, doing homework, given above. Important amongst these imperatives will be ones which regulate the order in which the rules of the logical system concerned are to be applied. For at each stage, when one is using a logical system, there is a very large number of alternative steps, any of which one is permitted to apply, so far as obedience to the rules of the logical system is concerned. These choices make the difference between a brilliant and a footling reasoner, not the difference between a sound and a fallacious one. Propositions leading to imperatives of this kind might be, When Socrates is mentioned, use the syllogism in Barbara, or If one method has been proved to be quicker than another, do not use the slower method. Some of these may be given by authority, but others may be produced by the machine itself, for example, by scientific induction. The idea of a learning machine may appear paradoxical to some readers. How can the rules of operation of the machine change? They should describe completely how the machine will react whatever its history might be, whatever changes it might undergo. The rules are thus quite time-invariant. This is quite true. The explanation of the paradox is that the rules will get changed in the learning process. The explanation of the paradox is that the rules which get changed in the learning process are of a rather less pretentious kind, claiming only an ephemeral validity. The reader may draw a parallel with the Constitution of the United States. An important feature of a learning machine is that its teacher will often be very largely ignorant of quite what is going on inside, although he may still be able to some extent to predict his pupil's behavior. This should apply most strongly to the latter education of a machine arising from a child machine of well-tried design or program. This is in clear contrast with the normal procedure when using a machine to do computations. One's object is then to have a clear mental picture of the state of the machine at each moment in the computation. This object can only be achieved with a struggle. The view that the machine can only do what we know how to order it to do appears strange in face of this. Most of the programs which we can put into the machine will result in its doing something that we cannot make sense of at all, or which we regard as completely random behavior. Intelligent behavior presumably consists in a departure from the completely disciplined behavior involved in computation, but a rather slight one, which does not give rise to random behavior or to pointless repetitive loops. Another important result of preparing our machine for its part in the imitation game by a process of teaching and learning is that human fallibility is likely to be omitted in a rather natural way, without special coaching. The listener is encouraged to read the original text and reconcile this with the point of view on page 24 and 25. Processes that are learned do not produce 100% certainty of result. If they did, they could not be unlearned. It is probably wise to include a random element in a learning machine. A random element is rather useful when we are searching for a solution of some problems. Suppose, for instance, we wanted to find a number between 50 and 200, which was equal to the square of the sums of its digits. We might start at 51 and then try 52 and go on until we got a number that worked. Alternatively, we might choose numbers at random until we got a good one. This method has the advantage that it is unnecessary to keep track of the values that have been tried but the disadvantage that one may try the same ones twice. But this is not very important if there are several solutions. The systematic method has the disadvantage that there may be an enormous block without any solutions in the region which has to be investigated first. Now the learning process may be regarded as a search for a form of behavior which will satisfy the teacher or some other criterion. Since there is probably a large number of satisfactory solutions, the random method seems to be better than the systematic it should be noticed that it is used in the analogous process of evolution. But there, the systematic method is not possible. How could one keep track of the different genetical combinations that had been tried, so as to avoid trying them again? We may hope that machines will eventually compete with men in all purely intellectual fields. But which are the best ones to start with? Even this is a difficult decision. Many people think that a very abstract activity, like the playing of chess, would be best. It can also be maintained that it is best to provide the machine with the best sense organs that money can buy, and then teach it to understand and speak English. This process could follow the normal teaching of a child. Things would be pointed out and named, etc. Again, I do not know what the right answer is, but I think both approaches should be tried. We can only see a short distance ahead, but we can see plenty there that needs to be done. Data Skeptic is a listener-supported program. To support the show, visit dataskeptic.com and click on the membership tab.